All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter, and you can put a bookmark there. Uh, We'll be there for the next nine weeks at least. Uh, We'll see where it goes from there, but right now it's looking like this new study uh, will be at least uh, nine weeks, which should cover the majority of our Sunday nights here in the summer as we'll be looking uh, at the book of of 2 Peter, And, and 2 Peter is wonderful for us today because it teaches us how to prepare for persecution. Now, I don't know that open persecution is happening to Christians today, but it might be in the very near future. So we must be prepared for that. So we'll look at that more and more. But tonight we're going to look at the first four verses of, of, of 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 as we look at our unity uh, in Christ. Uh, so if you would go ahead and stand... Second um, Peter chapter one. Uh, we'll read these first four verses, uh, and then we'll then we'll get started uh, with the sermon. Second Peter chapter one, verse one says, "Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ." Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let's pray, uh, and then and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, God, your inspired, inerrant, infallible word. And God, I, I pray that, that as I preach this word, that I would be true to the text. God, I pray uh, that you would empower me with the, with the Holy Spirit to, uh, to be true to the text and to be understanding unto the people, God, that all of us would have a better understanding of your word when we live here tonight than when we came. So God, help us here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all can be seated. I want you to imagine something for me. I want you to imagine that you wake up tomorrow morning and Christianity has been outlawed. I want you to imagine that Bibles are being burned, that Christians are being arrested. I want you to imagine that the church has gone underground. Okay, you got that that stirring in your heads. What would you do? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever kind of played that out in your mind as what happens if I wake up tomorrow and Christianity is illegal? What would you do? What would happen to our church? What would happen to Christianity in America? Now I can tell you that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Right? God's word is, is firm on that. But I can't help but wonder, what would happen to individual Christians or individual people who call themselves Christians? Or what would happen to the wishy-washy Christianity that we see in America today? I guess the question that I'm really asking is, are you prepared for persecution? Because it might not be too far away. We might not be too far away from persecution. Maybe, maybe some people think, oh, you know, that's, that's generations away. I would, I would tell you, look at what's happened even recently in Canada. As we've seen the, the government marching in and, and shutting down these churches, arresting these pastors. Maybe this persecution uh, is not too far away. You see, I think that we are on the steep part of the slope. If you can imagine a, a slope and we are sliding toward persecution, I think we are on the steep part of that slope. Think about it this way. Think if you're, if you're running down a hill. I wouldn't recommend that. But if you were, if you're running down a hill, you get to a point where it is so steep, you're not going to stop. I have a great fear that, that, that we in America today are getting on to that point, that we are running down that hill and it's getting ready to get so steep that we cannot stop. 
So persecution may not be too far away. So we must be prepared. That's the, that's the purpose of, of why we're going to be studying Second Peter. We want to be a people that are prepared when persecution comes. That we are ready. Because I want to tell you, persecution was commonplace in the New Testament. When you, when you open up the New Testament, you should think about that. As you're reading these, the epistles in the New Testament, it was written to a persecuted people. These people were hated. I think oftentimes we can kind of lose sight of that. But they were dealing with some intense persecution in the New Testament. And the height of persecution of Christians, perhaps throughout all time that we have seen, in, 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 in really against all time, was happening to the people who were reading this letter in 2 Peter. This letter was written in what's thought to be between 66 and 68 AD at the height of the rule of Nero. I think you all know who Nero was. He was the infamous Christian persecutor. He was the Roman emperor who would light Christians on fire to serve as torches for his dinner parties. Probably one of the the greatest persecutors of Christians of all times. And even Peter here, he's writing this letter that that we read here from prison. He is awaiting his death. That, that's the scenario as we approach this, this book of 2 Peter. Peter's getting ready to die. Look down with me in, in verse 14. He says, Knowing that shortly I must put off my tabernacle or, or, or my earthly body, uh, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath shown me. So soon, Peter's going to die. He will be martyred uh, for his faith in Jesus Christ. And I think it's phenomenal for us to have the book of, of 2 Peter, even the book of 1 Peter as well. I think both of those epistles are written uh, to teach us how to live in the midst of persecution. Because you, you, it's noted, and even by unbelievers, that first century Christians, they knew how to die well. That was said of believers in the early church. These people, we might not agree with them. We might burn them at the stake. But they die well. And I hope that through our study in this, that that maybe we're we're not going to avoid persecution. But I pray that we would be like the early Christians in the church. That we would learn to live and to die well. Because as I said... You know, this might happen to us very, uh, very soon. Now, I'll be honest, as we, as we read the book of, or as I have read and studied the book of Second Peter, I'm kind of surprised at some of the topics. When you start to think about, okay, well, what's, what's Peter going to tell us as we prepare for persecution, you know? What are all the things that he's going to say? Is he going to tell us how to avoid it? No, he, he doesn't tell us that. Is he going to tell us how to fight the persecutors? He doesn't tell us that either. Is he, is he going to tell us how we petition the government for, for equal rights? And, and, all, and all? No, he doesn't tell us how to do that. Instead, he teaches us what you would think of as just common Christian teaching. But it's, it's teaching and it's concepts that are so instrumental in surviving and, and preparing for persecution. It's things like unity and assurance. It's things like the scriptures, heresy, false teachers, uh, even holiness. We're going to find that some of these things are the most critical things for us as we prepare for persecution. And the one that we're going to look at tonight is our unity in Christ. We're going to see uh, tonight that being unified as a body in Christ is critical for us as we face the world. He says it here in verse number one. He, he says he's, he's, he's writing this letter to them that have obtained like precious faith. So he's writing this letter to people who have the same faith. He's saying, listen, people who have the same faith, people who are unified by the same faith. This is who I'm talking to. These are the people that need to be prepared for persecution. And when persecution comes, you need to know that you're not alone. What a glorious truth that is. That no matter what happens in this life, we will not be separated from God. And we will not be separated from God's elect. 
from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will always have something in common uh, with our fellow believers. So don't bicker. Don't fight. We're one in, in Christ. This like term here that we see, it denotes equality. It's the same faith. It's, it's the same rank. It's the same position. Uh, it's the same honor. It's the same standing. It's the same price. It's the same value. It's equal. And what an encouragement this would have been for the, for the early believers. And what an encouragement that is for us today to know that there are no second class citizens when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. That we all face the same problem, which is sin. We all find the same gospel message full of truth. We all have the same call of God to salvation. We all uh, have the same Holy Spirit indwelling in us. We all have this same faith, this like precious faith. And for first century Christians, this was a big deal. Because there was a lot of tension in those days, right? There was a tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The Jewish Christians thought that they were better because they were, they were Jews and they weren't dirty Gentiles. So they thought they were better than the Gentile Christians. That's really where the Jerusalem Council came about in, in the book of Acts. We're not going to go into that. But really what you see that comes out of that is, well, your faith is the same. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're Jew or Greek. Galatians 3, 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And not only that, not only this, this tension that there was between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, I think that by Peter writing this and addressing this in the very first verse, I think there's some tension between what we would call the normal Christians and the apostles. Because Peter's saying here to them who have obtained like precious faith with us, I think he's talking about the writers of the New Testament. I think he's saying, readers, you have the same faith as we have. There are some people who seem like giants of the faith. And I can imagine that Peter was one of those to the early Christians, right? He was the rock on which Christ was going to build his church. I mean, you think about the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, the greatest missionary to ever walk the face of the earth. The writer of the majority of the New Testament. I can see he would look like a giant of the faith. And even to me. I think about who are the giants of, of the faith to me. I look out throughout church history and see some of the, the, the great people of, of faith and people like you know Martin Luther and, and John Calvin and, and, and all these different people who have, who have lived the Christian life well and have had a huge impact on, on, on the kingdom of God. Peter is saying here, we are equal in Christ. You have the same faith as Peter has. You have the same faith as Paul has. You have the same faith as, as Martin Luther had. Right? This like precious faith is the same for all believers. Even in our world today, I think there's tension. I think there's a lot of talk about racism and, and inequality in our world today. And the answer to all of that isn't racial reconciliation. It's godly reconciliation. The answer to that is, is, is the gospel and salvation in Christ. If we have godly reconciliation, there shouldn't be a need for racial reconciliation. That'll all work itself out with the gospel. Because we're one in Christ. We all have this same like precious faith. But let's, let's not get down into that, that rabbit hole, because uh, we could be there all night. Let's get to the actual uh, the meat uh, of the sermon here tonight, as we're going to look at how we can prepare ourselves for persecution by recognizing and appreciating our unity in Christ. Uh, so I have four points for you. There's four verses, four points, four Ps uh, for you uh, here tonight. So, so be on the lookout for those. The first one that we're going to look at is we're unified by precious faith. I've kind of already spoiled that one for you. Uh, but point number one is we're unified uh, by 
uh, precious faith and the gift of precious faith uh, more specifically. Because we see that there and, and we talk about that and I feel like faith is one of those church words, right? We throw it around all the time, but we really have to understand what is faith? What does faith mean? Because that's, that's a very key word, at least to understanding 1 Peter 1 1. I think we, if we get off on the wrong foot and we can't understand the first verse of the, of the book, we're, we're in for a long study here. Uh, so let's get this right. But at its very basic level, I don't want to overcomplicate it. Because faith should be something that is easy enough for a child to understand. Faith is the Christian's ability to believe the gospel for salvation. Faith is believing the gospel for salvation. That is what faith is. I heard a preacher this week say, and he described it pretty good with an acronym, FAITH, F-A-I-T-H. Maybe some of you all know this. I didn't know this before this week, uh, so I was, I was impressed. Forsaking all, I trust him. Have some of you all heard that before? Yes? Okay. I was apparently raised in the wrong church. Uh, because that's the first time I had heard that. I was like, that's pretty good. I'm going to teach that to my kids. Uh, but yes, but faith is not something that should be difficult. It is forsaking all, I trust him. But specifically about this faith, it is a faith that is obtained. That's what, that's what Peter says here in verse 1. To them that have obtained like precious faith. What does this word obtained mean? How do you get faith? Well, you obtain it. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, specifically, this Greek word means you throw dice. You cast lots. That's how you get that faith. You say, well, wow, that's not helping me out here. I still don't understand what that means. Well, Jewish culture and really early first century culture, casting lots or throwing dice was a big deal. And, and you probably say, as, as independent Baptists, you're like, oh, that sounds a lot like gambling to me. I'm not really sure about that. But listen here. They would cast lots because of how high of a belief they had in the sovereignty of God. They believed that God was in control of all things, even the dice. So even their major decisions in life, they would say, cast the dice. Let God... Let the chips fall where they may. God is in control of everything. And I trust Him. Whatever happens, happens. I am trusting in God. So when we see this term uh, obtained or, or casting lots, how should we interpret that? What's the meaning of it? Well, it's really a meaning of, of something being attained by divine will. So this is not something of human effort or decision. It's not something of personal worth. But here, salvation is a gift. That's what it's telling us. This is the gift of faith. And, and really, not just, not just a, a, an ordinary gift, but it's a gift we did not deserve. It says here, it was the like precious faith. That's what the precious means. It's a gift that we did not deserve. We cannot generate faith on our own. We don't have the power to do that. It must come from God. You all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And then I'll add here, I heard, I heard John MacArthur say this week, Faith is simply breathing the breath that God's grace supplies. It is a gift. It is the gift of faith. You say, now let's talk a little bit more about faith because faith is only good as its object. Right? You tell me you have faith, I say, okay, what's your faith in? Because there's a lot of people that have faith these days. A lot of people put their faith in different things. But I say, what do you put your faith in? And Peter goes on to, to specifically say, Obtain like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Christ Jesus. So who is or what is your faith in? Well, all faith must be in Christ. We place our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what does that have to do with unity? Well, hang on there. Because we all, and it, and it tells us right here. Placing our faith in Jesus has to do with unity because it's all because of the righteousness of Christ. 
We all have the same righteousness because we are trusting in a righteousness that is not our own. We are, when we put our faith in Christ, we are trusting in His righteousness. This is the righteousness to satisfy God's holy demands. A perfect righteousness. And how does that righteousness come to us? Well, theologians call it the great exchange. That on the cross, Christ bore our sins. And in exchange for Him taking our sins, He gives us, He imputes upon us, His perfection. Our sins are paid for by Christ on the cross, and we stand before God, perfect, based upon His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So there's equality in that, right? That we are all trusting in an alien righteousness. A righteousness that's not our own. You're not trusting in your righteousness. I'm not trusting in my righteousness because that's, that's different. I might be more righteous than you are. You, I know myself way too good for that. The reality is you're way more righteous than I am. But I don't have to worry about that. Because I am trusting on the righteousness of Christ. The perfect righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that is able to satisfy God's holy demands. And what's great about this is that our standing before God cannot be changed because it is based upon the character of Christ. So my faith, it's not going to go away. Why? This, this like precious faith that God has gifted to me, it cannot go away. Because for it to go away, Christ would have to become less righteous. And that's not going to happen. Uh, so I can trust in and rely upon this. And it goes on um, to describe uh, Jesus a little bit more. It gives him a couple of titles after it talks about his, his righteousness. It says the righteousness of, of God and our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. So the, it identifies Christ as God and Savior. This is a big deal. This is one of the few places in the New Testament where this type of identification, direct identification of Jesus as God, is present in the New Testament. It is showing that Jesus is both the author and the agent of salvation. And this was important for the early church because you had heretics coming along like Arius who, who taught that... Uh, that Jesus was a creature. That Jesus was created. And, and you had the, the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed that dealt with that and ultimately said that Jesus was of the same essence as, as God. They were of one essence. But it's important here because Peter gives an, uh, a, a definitive statement that Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. That's a big deal. His title as God uh, refers to uh, the value of His righteousness. And His title as Savior refers to the purpose of His righteousness. So we have a, a faith, a like precious faith that is fully engulfed in the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ. And every Christian that has ever been saved has this same faith. No one has ever come to faith outside of this. This is a one-way street. The Bible describes it as a, right, as a narrow gate. Right? This is, Jesus is the only way to heaven. There is no other way to get to heaven outside of this faith that is described here in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1 1. So there should be great unity in that. That we all have this same like precious faith. There is one thing that everyone, if, if you are saved here tonight, we all have this one thing in common. And that's something that I, I don't have that in common yet with my kids. My kids aren't, aren't even saved yet. Get that. 
But, but we here tonight, those of you who, who are saved in Christ, we have something in common that no one else in the world can even fathom. A like precious faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're unified by precious faith. The next one that we see here is we're unified by peace, by His peace. In, in verse number 2, He says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You say, grace and peace. I thought we already had those things at salvation, that we were talking about those. Those, those things seem like they should be happening at salvation that we talked about in verse number 1. And I would say, you're right. We do get grace and peace at salvation. Romans 5 tells us that. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So you're absolutely right. We do get grace. Salvation is by grace alone, and there is a peace that comes at salvation. You're right. But this is different. Because he says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Or that grace and peace would be abundant unto you. This is like what the Bible says in John 1 verse 16, where it's talking about grace upon grace. That yes, we do get these things at salvation, but they continue and they build throughout the Christian life. There is this boundless flow of divine favor that God is just pouring out grace upon grace upon grace and peace upon peace upon peace to us. Grace is our unmerited favor. um, That God has not played favorites when dispensing grace unto us, but He has just showered us with unmerited favor. He saved us by grace. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, they, they really messed this up, especially in the time of the Reformation, and really they haven't recanted that fully even to this day. Um, but they've taught that grace comes primarily through the sacraments, that you can get grace. And, and the more sacraments that you, that you take and that you do, the more grace. That's not the unity that, that, we're, that we're talking about here. Because the, the grace of God, it's not like that. He has saved us all by grace equally. You can't get more, uh, more salvation than somebody by grace than, than somebody else. That's not how it works. You can't pay an offering and get in and achieve more grace from God. But we are all saved by grace through faith in Christ. Um, so they, they really got that wrong, but that, that's not what we're talking about here. And then peace. We are, as I said, we are made uh, at peace with God, but we're growing in peace each and every day. And after being made at peace with God, we, God grants us this peace that passes all understanding. I think even the, even the, the, the Jews understood that well uh, from number six, right? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make His face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up His countenance unto thee and give thee peace. The peace is something that is being multiplied unto us uh, through the knowledge of God. Spurgeon said, until you hear the gospel of peace, you will never know the peace of the gospel. So it starts. It starts with the gospel. But that peace of the gospel continues as you know more and more and more about God. There's some cheap substitutes for peace in our world today. I think we see that. I think there's a lot of Christians who think peace equals compromise, especially in and around the gospel. I've seen some Christians or so-called Christians who will, uh, for the sake of unity, compromise. And they, they desire unity, but they think the way to get to that unity is Compromise, And I say, no, the only way to get to unity is through peace, a peace that only God offers. And then I think there's also Christians out there who are so consumed with the opposites of peace that they never know true peace. Things like worry, discouragement, disagreements. That is, that is in their focus and they never are able to see this peace that is being multiplied unto them. 
You say, where, are this, where is this grace and peace found? Well, it's found in the knowledge of God. How can we experience the, the power and the provision of God? It's through knowing Him. It's through having an intimate understanding of Him. A deep and genuine knowledge of who God is. There's no such thing as a mindless Christian. Everything that we see about Christianity in the New Testament, there's a deep, intimate knowledge of who God is. That's how we're going to get grace and peace. Perhaps that's why there are so, many, so few people who have peace today. It's because they do not have a knowledge of who God is. I mean, think about it, right? When you learn about the, the character and the attributes of God, when you learn that God is sovereign and God is in control and, and, and He's not going to let you go, I mean, what, what, how, do you, how does that make you feel, right? I, I have a great sense of, of peace knowing that God is on His throne, that God is seated, that God is in control, that I am in His hand and nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Maybe that's why so few people experience peace. is because they don't know who God is. There, in the, again, in the early church, this was a problem. There were these people called the Gnostics. And they said that the truth cannot be learned. That it can only be experienced. Uh, and I think, I think Peter was probably likely, because we, we're going to see knowledge. Knowledge is a big theme as we go throughout uh, the, the epistle of Second Peter. And he doesn't call, he, he talks about false teachers, but he doesn't call them out by name. But I, I can't help but think that these types of people are in the back of Peter's mind. People who are saying, oh, no one can know the truth. You must ex- only through experience. And that's not what we say as Christians. We say, yes, the truth can be known because the truth has been given to us through the very Word of God. Grace, peace, and knowledge are inseparable. Right? If, if grace and peace are the heart, knowledge is the head. Now, you, can't, you can't live without either of those. And you will not have grace and peace without knowledge. And the vice versa is true. Any true knowledge will lead to grace and peace. These things go hand in hand. And Second Peter is bookended with this concept. Flip over to the end, the last verse. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. So Peter's going to start with grace and knowledge, and he's going to end with grace and knowledge. All of that in there. So would you like to have more grace and peace in your life? Grow in your knowledge of Christ. That's that's how that happens. All right, point number three. We're moving along here. Oh. Next, we'll look at that we are unified by His power. Point number three, verse number three, and and I I think you'll see where I got this. Verse number three says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. All Christians have been supplied everything that they need for life and for salvation by the power of Christ. Right? I mean, that's what he's saying here. We have everything that we need for life and for godliness through Him. So where, where where does this power come from? It comes from Christ. How long is this power going to last? Well, it's divine power, so it's going to last forever. It's permanent. What is the, the source of this power? Again, it's divine. It's, it's supernatural. This power word here, it's, it's, it's the Greek word. I mean, you all probably know it well. It's the Greek word for dynamite. Right? It, it, is, it is a true power. This is not some little power. 
And perhaps we throw around words like, oh, it's powerful. This is, this is truly powerful from the divine. And who is the recipient of this power? Well, it's a bunch of poor, wretched sinners like you and like me. We're unified by his power. 2 Corinthians 9 says, in, in verse number 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, uh, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. It's just another verse saying, God has given us everything that we need. I think there's some people who think they need something in addition to salvation. You see these people all the time. They see they need they need a, the spirit baptism on top of salvation. They need they need tongues, they need experiences, they need personal revelation from God. They need these extra things. Take it Peter tells us God's already given us everything that we need for life and for godliness without asking. And we didn't ask for these things. God just is gracious to us and He's given us everything that we need. He could have easily said, you're saved, but you've got to work out everything in life on your own. It'll still be good for you in the end, but, you know, but that's not what God did. He's given us everything for life and for godliness. God only, not only gives us new life, in Christ, but He empowers us to live each and every day. And it says here at the end of verse 3 that He's given us this, this power um, and He has called us to glory and to virtue. Glory here is, is a, means deity, and virtue means moral perfection. So both of those things really mean kind of perfection there. So this power, so what is He calling us to do with this, this power that He's given us? Well, He's called us to live godly lives. That's what we're to do with the power that, that God has, has given us. And I think this causes us to see our need for repentance. Because... While God has called us to live godly lives, that's, that's an impossible task for us. We will fall short of the glory of God each and every day. But we all, there's equality in that, right? That we're all going to fall short each and every day. And that, I think that should bring about a source of, of unity in us. Because we're all a bunch of sinners who are, who are seeking to live godly lives. That's what, that's what Christians are. A bunch of sinners who are seeking to live godly lives, seeking to live up to this, this high call in Christ Jesus, this call of, of moral perfection here. There should be a common unity around the pursuit of glory and virtue that we see in verse 3. I mean, I think an example of this is, is look at the apostles. And they were just a bunch of poor fishermen who were just trying to glorify God, that God had empowered them, God had saved them and empowered them, and they just went out and did whatever God said to do. Uh, Peter's a great example here. Right? I mean, here, we, we, I skipped it um, in verse number 1, but we, we could have talked about it. Peter identifies himself as, as a servant and as an apostle. It's, it's an important introduction because servant here, it's... It's, it's a purchased slave. He's identifying himself as the lowest layer of society. Even lower than animals. He's identifying himself as that. He belongs to God. He's at the disposal of God. He owes his obedience and his service to God. It's a position of, of humility, of submission, of duty, of obedience. And he's saying, I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do for the glory of God. He's called, he's called Peter to glory and to virtue. So if God wants me to go and to be a servant, I'm going to go and be a servant. That means I'm the lowest layer of society. I will be the lowest layer of society. But not only is he called to be a servant, he's called to be an apostle, which you could argue is the complete opposite of that. It's like the highest level. right? It's the highest authority. He's divinely commissioned. 
as a witness of Christ. He has the authority to proclaim truth. I think it's interesting, I was reading this week, the only way that God teaches us about Christ is through the apostolic testimony. I mean, God could have taught us many ways about about Christ, but how he chose to teach us about Christ is through the apostolic testimony. So, but, you know, but I think that if it meant glorifying their Savior, I think the apostles, I think they would have been street sweepers. If that's what it meant to bring glory and virtue to their Savior, that's what they would have done. So may we all be, have that same heart, that we would be unified by the power of God working in us for glory and for virtue. That we would say, we're going to come together and we're going to be a people who seek to do nothing else but to glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be unified in that. That we're not, we're not fighting over, you know, who, who gets to, well, that, that person, you know, they, they got to serve at Meals of Love this week and that just, that just doesn't, that doesn't make me happy. I, I, I really wanted to do that. Or that we would not fight and bicker over all of those small things that you see in churches all the time but that we would be a people who are, who are just so unified and so with a common mind, seeking to do nothing else but to glorify our Savior, empowered by God to glorify our Jesus. One final point here, and we'll be done. We've been... We've seen here, as, as we've kind of stepped through each of these uh, verses, we're, we're unified by precious faith, we're unified by peace, we're unified by power, and finally, we're unified by uh, promises. And again, it, w- it wasn't very hard to come up with these four Ps, because they're all right there in the verses. Verse number four, um, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Um, that you may be, uh, that you might be partakers of the b- divine nature, having escaped the corruption uh, that is in the world through uh, lust. So finally, we're going to see we're unified by these promises, and it tells us here in verse number four uh, that God uh, has granted us uh, these promises. If you look this up in the Greek, the verb tense is a past action with continuing effects. So this is something that God has granted us in the past, but He is still granting us that these promises even today. And they're precious promises. This is the second time we've used the word precious in these four short verses, but they're valuable promises. And it even calls them exceeding great promises. I don't think I have to explain to you what, what exceeding great promises mean. They're the greatest promises. You say, well, what what are these promises? What are some examples of the promises that God gives Christians? There's all kinds. We could, well, I'll give you a few. When he, he he promises us spiritual life, he promises us resurrected life, he promises us heaven, he promises us eternal rewards, he promises the Holy Spirit, abundant grace, joy, strength, guidance, help, instruction, wisdom. We could go on and on and on and on about all the promises of God. But know that these promises are made to every believer. If you are a believer today, God, all of the promises that are directly given to believers, not all of them in the Bible, if it was given to Israel, maybe maybe that's not true, but the promises that are clearly given to believers in the, uh, in, in the Bible... That means you, right? We talked about that in verse 1. We all have that same like faith. And so if God is giving these exceeding great and precious promises, well, believers means you. And I think that that's wonderful to know that you know, God is not just promising joy to Joe Schmo down the street, but that he's made a promise of joy and of strength and of guidance and of help to me too. And that, that's amazing to know that, I mean, we sing the song all the time, right? That we are standing on the promises of God. Um, 
And, and he specifically calls out here uh, a, a promise that he has promised to make us partakers of the divine nature. You say, well, what does that mean? I'm going to tell you, this is, this is a tough one. I actually didn't, don't think it's that tough for us to understand, but it's clearly tough for some people to understand because there's a lot of wonky theology on this one. Um, there are some people who have taken this verse to say that people who are saved get to be gods. That's what they say. Part, as, uh, partakers of the divine nature means that when you're saved, you become a god. And that is not what, what, what this is teaching or what this concept is. Um, what this is is that we get to become like God. I think you all know that, right? Salvation makes us like Christ. Right? And really, that, that is the Christian life. That we're becoming more and more like Christ each and every day. That God starts us on that trajectory at salvation. Uh, and then, then through, through the Christian life, through sanctification, He is making us more and more like Jesus each and every day until we get to heaven where we are glorified and we are uh, perfect, presented with a glorified resurrection body and we are like Christ for all eternity. So that's what He's talking about here. Now the question you might ask is, well, is He talking about heaven or is He talking about today, right? Is he talking about as partakers of the divine nature? Is he talking about, right, that glorified resurrected body over here at heaven? Or is he talking about something else? Um, And I can't help but think that there is some present application to this, right? Because remember, he's writing this letter to a people who are at the height of persecution in the world. So I think there has to be some present application in that we become like God at salvation, at the new birth, and we are becoming more and more like God each and every day. So as we continue to become more and more like God, we are partakers in this divine nature as we become more and more like God, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. We say, well, How do you become like God? Some people say we need to open a bunch of soup kitchens and that's how how we can become like God. And there's nothing wrong with opening up a soup kitchen. But the defining attribute, and I want you to get this, the defining attribute of God has been and will always be His holiness. That is the defining attribute of God is His holiness. So if you want to be like God, we must be holy. We must pursue really what we were talking about here in, in, in verse 3. That glory and that, and that virtue. And he goes on in, in verse number 4. He, he tags it at the end. That we're partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This corruption term, it, I, I looked it up this week. It's, it's a kind of an intense term. The word means a rotting organism full of stench. The a pleasant, pleasant uh, concept there. But really what, what he's using it is using it to convey the effects of sin. And while maybe you say, well, that's kind of an appalling definition. Well, sin is an appalling thing. Um, so we, we, we can't, we're not going to sugarcoat what sin is. Sin is a rotting thing full of stench. And even talks about lust here at the end, the evil desires, the, the driving force of the, of the corruption there. I think he's, he adds this on at the end to remind them to practice what they preach. Right? He's saying, if you all are partakers of the divine nature, your actions better reflect your identity. They're being identified as partakers of the divine nature. Uh, They're identified as people who are called to glory and to virtue. You better practice what you preach. Your character better be aligned with your calling here. So we should be. So we can be unified. Uh, in this, as, as we can all be people who are practicing what we preach and letting our actions reflect our, our identity, we're going to be falling short of this each and every day, just like we, we talked about in verse number 3. 
But we're all still pursuing this, this holiness, seeking to be more and more like God uh, each and every day. So we're unified uh, by the promises that we have as, as partakers of the divine nature. So I hope that you've seen today that you know, we can prepare ourselves for persecution by recognizing that the equality and the unity that we all have in Christ. If you're, if you're saved today, all these things are true of you. Anyone who is saved today, these things are all going to be true. You're going to have that like uh, precious faith. Grace and peace will be be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God. God will give you His his divine uh, power to pursue after glory and virtue. And and the promises of God apply to you and that you could be a partaker of of the divine nature. That applies to you. That applies to all believers. We are all unified by these things in Christ. So I hope that you, you have seen that uh, tonight. I think that the world is often unified by the things that they hate. I pray that Christians would be unified by the one that they love. I pray that that would be us. That we would be unified by Christ. That we would have unity in Christ. Because if not, we'll never make it when persecution comes. If we're fighting with each other over you know, who gets to serve in meals of love and, and, and silly, silly things like that. We must be one in Christ saying, hey, we have the same like precious faith. I can overlook a lot, of, a lot of things. I can overlook somebody sinning against me, hurting my feelings, saying something mean to me. If we have a like precious faith, that's what matters in this world. You're going to go out there into the world and they're not going to have that like precious faith that's described to us here in 1 Peter 1. They're not. They're going to be against you. They're going to be opposed to you. They'll probably end up persecuting you. They're not going to have that. But when you come in here, when we come together as the body of Christ, we are one people on, uh, following one Savior on one mission. We're unified by Christ. So be one in, in Christ today. But, I think too often we, we, we try to, to go after the symptoms and we fail to look at the root of the problem. I think that you should look at this passage, and I said all of these things are true of believers. I think that you should look at this passage here tonight and say, is this true of me? Because these things are true of believers, right? Is your faith based upon the righteousness of Christ? Ask yourself that. What am I I putting my faith in? Am I putting my faith in Christ and His righteousness? Or am I not? Now, are you, are, are, you, are you experiencing this grace and peace that is multiplied to you through the knowledge of God? Do you even care about the knowledge of God? Ask yourself that. Do you have the divine power of God to live a life of, of godliness, of glory and of virtue? Is that the desire of your life? That you would live a life for God, for Christ? And have you really escaped the corruption of the world? I think we should... There, there, is this, there is this application of this passage to us broadly as the global church. I think there's application of this passage as the local church. But there's application individually for us to take a look at these verses. These verses are true of all Christians. And then say, is that true of me? If these verses are true of all Christians and they're not true of me, maybe I need to get some things right. Maybe you need to be saved. Right? If these things are not true of you, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. You don't have that like precious faith that we see in verse number one. Because these things kind of have to go in order. Right? You're not going to have this multiplication of grace and peace if you've not experienced God's grace to begin with. 
You're not going to have this divine power uh, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit if you've not been saved to begin with. You can't be a partaker in the divine nature if you're still living in the corruption and the lusts of the world. It all starts there. Do you have this like precious faith that is described to us in verse number 1? If not, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time here tonight. And God, we thank you for a phenomenal four verses to start um, the book of, of Second Peter. God, I, I thank you for these verses. And, and God, I pray uh, that we would take heed to these, to these verses. God, I pray that we, at, at least us gathered here tonight, God, I pray that we would be a unified people. God, that we would be unified uh, not by political party, not by whether we're, 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 we're conservative or liberal, not by um, ethnicity and not, not by job, but God, that we would be unified by Christ. The one thing uh, that all believers have in common is Christ. So God, I pray that you would bind us together in Christ. And God, I pray that we would be a people who are prepared and ready to face persecution. That no matter what is thrown our way, we would cling to Christ and we would cling to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So God, help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.